standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's Sunday Chops. It's nearly Halloween and in the spirit of this, see what I did there? This week I had a bloody lovely natter with Melanie Robinson, project manager of the British Museum of Folklore, about wicked spirits, witchcraft and magic at Colchester Castle, an exhibition at, you guessed it, Colchester Castle, which she co-curated. The exhibition is a collaboration between the castle, the British Museum of Folklore and the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boss Castle about the infamous English witch trials between the 15 and 1800s and tells the stories of the people, predominantly women, who were the victims of these. We chatted about the historical context, the women who were accused of witchcraft and why the witch trials remain worryingly relevant to contemporary society. And Morris dancing, because, you know, who doesn't want to chat about Morris dancing? I loved talking to Melanie and I hope you enjoy listening to our chats. I'm joined by Melanie Robinson, Projects Manager at the Museum of British Folklore and co-curator of the Wicked Spirits exhibition at Colchester Castle. Hello, Melanie. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Jen. Good to speak to you. Now, I should clarify before we start that the title of the exhibition isn't Wicked Spirits. It's like Wicked Spirits with a question mark. (laughs) And it is about one of my weird historic pet subjects, witches, or rather the 16th and 17th century witch trials. I'm going to come back to this because obviously that is the the crux of, of what we'll be talking about today. But first of all, can you tell me a little bit about the Museum of British Folklore, which is where you, you know, who you are actually employed by? Because this exhibition is at Colchester Castle, but it's a collaborative work, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So the Museum of British Folklore was set up in 2009 by Simon Costin, who realised that there was no national museum that looked at the folk culture of the UK. So he went off on a little caravan tour. He converted a caravan and made a miniature museum with a few sort of folk artefacts, including actually um, a mummified cat, which I think we've got one in um, (laughs) in the exhibition, which was interesting, actually, because the fact that he even included that, you know, there is this really close link between magic, witchcraft and, and folklore and beliefs. So anyway, he set off on his trip. Um, I found out about it, thought it sounded like a brilliant idea. And we've been working together ever since. But during that time, in 2013, Simon became the director of the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boss Castle in Cornwall. So hence there's this you know, connection and, and how we ended up working together on this particular exhibition. It kind of sounds quite niche to me. When I think of folklore, I guess I think of like myths and Morris dancers. Weirdly, I don't know. I don't know if yeah, that counts. A, is, is that, a, that is that, a that that's about right? I mean, the folklore, the law bit, mm-hmm. is the stories. All those like amazing tales that you know are up and down the country. So what we're actually doing is looking at the seasonal customs of the UK. So that could be something like the Whittlesea straw bear that takes place just after Easter, where someone dresses up, you might have seen it, dresses up in this incredible straw costume that ends up being about seven foot tall and then is burnt at the end of the 
festival or um, it could be something like Jack in the Green, which takes place in Hastings, where everyone paints themselves green and dresses up in foliage and jigs about Hastings Old Town for May Day. So there's there's a real variety of different things that go on, you know, annually at a particular time in a particular place. And that's more the kind of area that we're focused on as the museum. So basically, from what you're saying to me, it's kind of like there's a lot of weird, like little village, pagany, old school stuff. Yeah, that's the misconception, actually. Okay. So a lot of people do think that these traditions are rooted in pre-Christian, keep talking about traditions and customs, but, you know, basically pre-Christian, that they, they existed, then Christianity came and, you know, either stamped on it or wiped it out. It's not actually the case. I mean, that's down to a chap called uh, James Fraser, who wrote a book called The Golden Bough, which was really, really influential. And for quite a while, people, you know, did have this idea of, of it being pagan. But there's been an awful lot of research since that has actually found it's not associated with that. And in actual fact, the church supported a lot of these traditions. So, for example, um, Morris dancing is a really good example. When you go back into parish records, they actually funded like the outfits of the Morris dancers because they would raise money in what was called church ales. An ale is is definitely a factor in, in mm. most seasonal customs, <laughs> um, which raised money for the church. So there was this kind of symbiotic relationship. There, it wasn't, uh, yeah, these kind of ungodly peasants all doing these things. And the other thing is that a lot of these customs have kind of waxed and waned over the years. And they're in, they are really resilient, but an awful lot of the ones that are in place today are actually revivals. So they're not continuous. I was actually in Colchester recently with a friend and there was a kind of like eco festival going on. And um, we went to check it out and there were some like goth Morris dancers there. They look like kind of like steampunk Morris dancers almost. And I said, oh, I think I think there might be Morris dancers. And she said, I think there might be Molly dancers or, or something like that. And I said, oh, no, I think because that's a hobby hoss possibly there. She looked at me and she said, I get the feeling we both know a little bit more about Morris dancing than we're possibly comfortable with admitting. I was like, my parents are friends with quite a lot of Morris dancers. They don't Morris dance themselves, but they're, they're friends with a lot of Morris dancers. And she was like, yeah, yeah, me too. My parents weren't Morris dancers, just their friends were. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it still has got that stigma. And in actual fact, you were probably right because Molly dancing is um, associated with Cambridgeshire and, and the Fens and and it's a slightly uh, kind of different type of Morris dancing because they tend to have face paints and they also practice cross-dressing as well. So mm. you'll have men dressed up as women and all None that, that stuff. going on. Okay, I'm going to report back to her then. In my seamless link... Melanie, from this to the exhibition. Morris dancing was famously banned by Oliver Cromwell, unless that's historically inaccurate, which I hope you're not going to tell me is the case. Oh, she's, you can't see that, listeners, but she's kind of like shaking her head around a bit like... And obviously, Oliver Cromwell presided over quite a lot of the persecution of women, mostly, but some men as well, which ended in, of course, the witch trials that this exhibition is based on. We talked about the, the question mark 
on the end of the title, Wicked Spirits, which lends itself to a kind of, I don't know, my understanding of that is that perhaps what we're saying is it was all bollocks and they weren't witches, to paraphrase slightly. (laughs) Do you you want to tell me a bit more about that question mark, Melanie? so this is a collaborative exhibition. So we worked um, really closely with the team at Colchester Museums and we yeah we we had to come up with a, obviously an exhibition title to work towards so the inspiration for it was actually from james the first's um witchcraft act that he brought in and it was called an act against conjuration witchcraft and dealing with evil and wicked spirits so we thought well that's great but the exhibition the question mark is essentially saying, you know, who really were the wicked spirits in this story? Hmm. So that's what we were were exploring. That's where the title comes from. Well, I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? I think it's fairly easy to answer. (laughs) But but there's obviously quite a lot of background to that. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about the background to the exhibition, historically speaking? So although you're absolutely right in in saying that during the time of um, Oliver Cromwell, this is when the, you know, the height of the kind of of witch hunting happens. In actual fact, I mean, this this exhibition goes right back to the 15th century. So what kind of really triggered the whole whole exhibition was that um, Colchester Castle offered a loan of a book called Malleus Maleficarum, which always trips me up, and I prefer to call it but, uh, <laughs> Hammer of the Witches, which is this sort of real name, which was authored by um, a German cleric, Heinrich Sprenger. And it's absolutely, I mean, it's the most bizarre book because he's absolutely obsessed with women and he's obsessed with sex and has a massive problem with both. Hmm. Um, so you see you know these things kind of recurring throughout the book but I have to say I've not actually read the book in full but the way that the book was laid out was actually like a manual so he had a part one which was all about kind of proving the existence of witchcraft and then the part two was the harm that witchcraft caused and part three was the process of prosecution conviction and ultimately execution, which is kind of the bit that we were kind of most interested Mm. in. It was hugely influential. Yeah, it was published in 1487, and I think it was republished about 20 times in 20 years. And although, again, there's been a bit of historical debate as to how much it influenced the witch hunts, interestingly enough, it was reprinted around the time Mm. that we see this spike in, in witch hunting. But, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. It's like, actually, was it reprinted because this was going on or was it reprinted and then influenced the witch hunts? So this book was floating around and actually there's a lot of publications and pamphlets that were around prior to the witch hunts in Essex and they were being disseminated all over Europe. And there's this really interesting parallel between the rise of printing and the rise in witchcraft. So it is, it's this idea that, you know, you spread these stories and then it kind of seeps into the popular consciousness and you create the idea of the witch. 
So given that background, you've then got a character who you may well have heard of called Matthew Hopkins, who I actually don't want to spend too much time talking about, because again, that was something we were conscious of when we put the exhibition together. Focus has re- always been on Matthew Hopkins. You know, you've got Witchfinder General, the film, mm. Vincent Price, you know, which is great sort of um, camp kind of horror, but absolutely dreadful, in, you know, historically in representation of women and all of that. But yeah, he, you know, he, he's buoyed up basically by all these various tracks. He's always centred, isn't he? And, and of course, yeah. it, that's wrong. He shouldn't be centred because one of the points of the exhibition is to remember the women and other people. So I need to stop saying women, but it, it, it is overwhelmingly women who were in, in the main yeah. yeah absolutely but yeah so so he he's got all the, this you know printed materials kind of say look you know this is proof and he takes it upon himself to call himself the witch finder general and goes about um around um essex and norfolk and just the Omberons kind of with stern who's his kind of accomplice you know they're hunting the these people and looking to prove that they're witches and as part of that they used yeah various methods to extract confessions i don't know if he came up with the idea of it but certainly the swimming test so it is quite distressing you know and 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 actually really ridiculous as well because well, you can't win you literally no. can't win you exactly. you drown or you get burnt at the stake, right? So, exactly. yeah. So it was basically you got thrown in some water. Generally, you were bound or sometimes uh, bound to a chair. Dunks, yeah. If you if you sank, you were innocent. If you floated, you were a witch and tried. In actual fact, um, witches were hung. That's the other thing. They, they okay. were burnt in England. They were in in mainland Europe. Mm-hmm. That was. Being burned at the stake was the way you went if you were accused of witchcraft. But here they were always hung. In Scotland, I think they hung them and then burnt them. So to be sure, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Either way, it, it, it's not great. But he rounded up around thirty-five women who ended up in Colchester Jail, which is part of Colchester Castle, which is another reason why mm-hmm. this exhibition, you know, is site-specific. So when people visit it, they enter the the castle, they can see this exhibition and then follow through and actually go to the jails where some of these women were held. Who were the women who were accused of these things? What kinds of things could get you accused of witchcraft? I mean, this goes back to the Witchcraft Act, the, the James the First one, where there's a lot of focus on um, demons, relationships with the devil, because this was his kind of personal thing. I mean, James the First wrote a book called Demonology, which was, again, kind of exploring what is a witch and what do they do. And, um, and also, as you know, I mean, he he translated the Bible. You know, he's a very kind of Christian character and, and petrified of... of demons mm. and witchcraft so he kind of took it upon himself wrote it wrote this book it's all about harm and causing harm for example if you you know you had a lot of women that practiced as um herbalists as midwives you didn't have doctors at that time so they would help their neighbors if they were sick and you know brew up some concoction mm. obviously 
a lot of them didn't work or actually were harmful or people just had much lower life expectancies and died. So what was happening was all of that was being tallied up with, oh, you know, Agnes gave me this broth, suddenly I'm sick or they, you know, they said a bad word and three days later my child died. So that's what was going on. I mean, in terms of what kinds of women they were in, again, these are generalisations. And we also have to understand that the evidence that we have is not written by these women. These women are voiceless. You know, there is the kind of testimony that was taken at court. Generally, it's quite kind of wild stories that are documented. And you have to ask, you know, why were these women telling these stories you know was was their mental illness were they so stressed that they would say anything you know you just don't know the kind of real context but the information we do have for example about some of the Essex women was one of the kind of most famous ones was Agnes Waterhouse she was put on trial in Chelmsford and that was actually in 1566 so she's prior Mm. to the appearance of Matthew Hopkins. She was accused of using sorcery to kill livestock and then also the death of her husband. But, you know, it's like, really? Mm. I don't, yeah, we don't know how. The other thing that is recurring is this idea of the witch's familiar. So this would be little creatures that would be surrounding them that they would have this kind of sort of parasitic relationship with really and they're quite fantastical and there's a very famous picture of Matthew Hopkins surrounded by I think they're Joan Prentice's familiars just weird hybrid creatures that that apparently they would talk to and they would suckle them and you know or it might be the form of the devil that comes as a cat you know I think what's interesting in terms of the the context of the society is that, you know, this is a time of really turbulent change, as you, you know, pointed out earlier, it's the civil wars going on. And then you're also seeing this huge shift in kind of rural agrarian sort of economies towards the capitalist economy that we know and love. And, you know, it, to a large degree, these women were kind of victims of, of this of this change. And there's some really interesting work that's been done by Sylvia Federici, who's actually, she's a feminist Marxist historian. So she's obviously, she's coming at it, looking at the changes that, that came about during capitalism. She talks about this kind of change in thinking where there's this massive shift. It's a notion of the world where everything is alive and has a relationship to each other, be it an object, be it an animal, be it a person. And so there's this this massive kind of intellectual change is going on where everything's becoming much more rationalised. So there's an idea almost that you need to leave those beliefs mm. behind and you need to get with the programme. You know, so these potentially were women who were not getting with the programme. As you said before, Colchester Castle is a significant site because a lot of the witch trials of that era happened around Essex and Suffolk and and many of the women accused of witchcraft were held at the castle prior to those trials. We've talked about Matthew Hopkins, the witch finder general. He was based in Manningtree, just down the road, and, you know very much doing his thing in the kind of Essex or wider East Anglian area. 
And in Essex alone, almost a thousand people, mostly women, were accused of witchcraft between 1500 and 1800. I'm trying not to draw this link because I think I'm putting too much like contemporary whatever onto it. But I wondered why did so much of this happen in that area? Is it literally just because that is where Hopkins operated? So, like, unlucky if you happen to be old and, 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 you know, a bit weird or whatever, and you lived in an area where Matthew Hopkins was operating? Or is there anything more to it? I think that's a really interesting question. And I I think, you know, yeah, him as a personality definitely had a, a big impact. Again, I know, I haven't actually got it to hand, but I do know, again, from reading the Federici book, that she mentions Essex as a place where it was affected by the Enclosures Acts. So that meant that people weren't free to farm. There were kind of political mechanisms that were at work and it's about kind of control and it's about ownership. And Essex was a was a county where that was particularly in effect. So potentially, again, it, it kind of goes back to this political situation that was going on. But yeah, it would it would be really interesting to, to look at that further. On. A lot of this, a lot of what's happening here is social contagion, basically. Right. So this kind of like I'm loath to use the word hysteria because obviously it has like very sexist connotations, but this kind of like spreading hysteria. There's a lot happening around this time. We've already touched on it, you know, that, that might contribute to to what's going on. So there's the English Civil War, which kind of has like the double whammy of Puritans wind up in charge and the king gets executed. And and so everyone's world is literally turned upside down like it's it's completely nuts which when you put it like that is a bit like oh does does any of this sound familiar lads <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then there's also as you said before the development of the printing press spreading ideas around so it's a great thing in terms of freedom of expression and sharing information but on the other hand and again, I have to say, oh, does any of this sound familiar, lads? <laughs> like, if you kind of look at what is happening, you know, at the moment in contemporary society. So am I being hyperbolic to suggest that the very weird times in which we live, like there are some real parallels there. Should we be a bit concerned? Yeah, so I'm really glad, actually, that you've you've picked up on that because that was something. Obviously, as a team, we were we were talking about as just as you've done and saying, "Oh, that's that's a bit familiar. That's a bit, you know." And and obviously, you know, again, you, you flagged this up earlier. You do have to be really careful about projecting contemporary ideas onto historical events. Nevertheless, I think that we are hoping that people might be able to see how the witch hunts happened and how potentially they are, you know, that, that kind of mentality is, as you say, is happening today. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about the, the witch hunts is how local they were as well. It was very personal if you fell out with your neighbour badly, well, why don't we accuse her of being a witch and that will get rid of her? And, you know, you only have to go onto, like, neighbourhood Facebook pages, for example, to see how something <laughs> relatively trivial can yeah. really escalate. 
So I don't think you can help but make parallels. And then obviously on a wider scale, of course, you've got Twitter, you know, and it is, it's like the the kind of snowball effect. You, You know, someone has an idea, they start to spread it, it starts to, you know, and it is, it is contagious. So no, I mean, it, that was not lost on us, although the exhibition doesn't make that explicit. But hopefully when people go to it, they'll understand. And also the the context, you know, what, why is it that the most vulnerable members of society are singled out and persecuted? You know, and again, um, unfortunately, that is the story today as well. So, yeah, the hope is that people will kind of go away thinking, you know, making some of those parallels and understanding, you know, how these things happen. Because if you've got an awareness of how something like the witch hunts came to pass, then hopefully you can kind of check yourself and your behaviour and just think a little before, before you talk or put something on Twitter. So what kinds of things could we expect to see in the exhibition if we if we head down there to check it out? The Museum of Witchcraft and Magic has loaned quite a few items from their collection. So it's a really great opportunity for people to see the collection because Boscastle in Cornwall is really quite remote. And although they get a huge amount of visitors every year, they're only open for six months of the year. Um, so it means that these objects are actually going to be on display whilst the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic is closed for the winter season. I mean, they're just beautiful things. I mean, the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic was set up by a chap called Cecil Williamson, who came from a film background and did like these quite incredible kind of theatrical displays, which wouldn't sort of sit so well now. And um, Simon's been kind of rearranging and, and redesigning the, the museum. But Cecil left these wonderful captions that go alongside a lot of these objects. So we've got a pair of leather hand strokers. Oh, you, yes. <laughs> and his um, his caption says, "A West Country lady expert in stroking magic." I mean, who knew? Oh, wow. Was Audrey Rund of Norton Fitzwarren, regarded by all as a witch because of her powers with cattle and horses, and she made a living tramping from farm to farm, stroking sick and lame animals with these leather hand strokers. Who wouldn't want a job like that? That sounds pretty good. I just you got your hand strokers, go to the farms, <laughs> stroke a cow. A couple of other things that are in it are um, some lovely charms. So charms are used as protective magic. Mm. So this is against, you know, malignant kind of witchcraft. So people would make these things often out of natural materials or things that they had at home. So there's just a couple of oranges that are studded with cloves that would be tied to the headboard of a married couple to ensure like a, that they had a long-lasting marriage. And then another one that's kind of closely associated with Cornwall is a sea witch charm. And it's a shell wrapped up in a, the wife's stocking. And then he says it's, it's, there's another shell inside with covered in red wax and a certain substance have no idea. We, we don't know. We haven't had it tested. Oh. But um, it would be given to a sailor yeah. to ensure that he came back because obviously it's a huge fishing community. And so, yeah, it's things like that. And also just drawing out the idea that, you know, magic being used for good and um, drawing back on that that tradition of, you know, using herbs and and helping people rather than 
harming people. Melanie, am I right in thinking that the Museum of British Folklore is not actually a physical museum? Yeah, so we don't currently have a permanent home, but we collaborate with other institutions to put on exhibitions and to show the collection. We've actually got a big exhibition opening in spring of next year at Compton Burney in Warwickshire, which is going to be looking at a folk costume. So all the amazing outfits that people wear from like Notting Hill Carnival, like right through to hopefully Whittlesea, Straw Bear. Yeah, so we're just gathering up various outfits at the moment, which is really exciting. That sounds amazing. I should also say as well that Simon and me are going to be giving a talk at Colchester Castle on the 8th of November, which is called Magic and Folklore. So we'll be talking more about the relationship between Museum of Witchcraft and Magic and Museum of British Folklore and, and also more about how we how we kind of imagined this exhibition, how we put it together. Well, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to check my diary, Melanie. The Wicked Spirits Witchcraft and Magic at Colchester Castle exhibition is a collaboration between Colchester Castle, the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boss Castle and the Museum of British Folklore. It's showing until January the 6th in God's own city. That's right, it is now a city of Colchester. While you're there, you can pop down to First Sight. It's a lovely uh, art gallery. You can go with your small children. It's a nice day out. And Red Lion Books on the High Street. Pick yourself up a copy of The Witches of Manningtree by A.K. Blakemore. I don't know if you've read that, Melanie. It's bloody cracking i've talked about it on the podcast before honestly you will not regret it it's such a good book melanie where can we follow you and indeed the museum of folklore so it's a bit of a mouthful the best place is instagram so Mm -hmm. it's at museum underscore of underscore british underscore (laughs) folklore or at museum underscore of underscore witchcraft underscore (laughs) and (laughs) underscore magic but yeah instagram's the place because it's it's a brilliant showcase obviously for for images and museum of witchcraft and magic has got thousands and thousands of followers from all over the world which is brilliant but yeah that's the best place to go to find out what's going on okay great melanie thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me thank you jen it's been great Standard issue for all women.